This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. DigitalOcean is the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications of any size, removing infrastructure friction and providing predictability so developers and their teams can deploy faster and focus on building software that customers love. With thousands of in-depth tutorials and an active community, we provide the support you need. DigitalOcean stands out of the crowd due to its simplicity and high performance with no billing surprises. Try DigitalOcean for free by getting a $100 infrastructure credit at do.co slash seradio. Hello and welcome to Software Engineering Radio. This is Travis Kimmel. Today my guest is Kevin Goldsmith. Kevin is an experienced leader of high-profile, high-performing product research and shared technology engineering organizations. Until recently, Kevin was the CTO at Avo, the Vice President of Engineering, Consumer at Spotify, a Director of Engineering at Adobe Systems, and a member of the Windows Media, Windows CE, CoreOS, and Microsoft Research Teams at Microsoft. Kevin, thanks for joining Software Engineering Radio. It's awesome to be here. Very happy to uh, join you today. Great. Well, today we're going to be talking about Conway's Law, how organizational design influences architecture. So we'll talk a little bit about what that is and then uh, and then Kevin's experience with it. So why don't we start with just a, a quick intro here. What is Conway's Law? Yeah, so Conway's Law is interesting and it, it seems to be having a, a new uh, life in the industry. Conway, Melvin Conway was, was a software architect back in the 60s and he wrote this article uh, for Datamation Magazine in uh, April 1968 called How Do Committees Invent? And it was more or less, uh, I, I like to think about it, you know, having read it, I like to think about it as sort of the equivalent of a, of a grumpy software developer blog post of today, um, where really he was just complaining that this pattern that he saw in, in his own teams that where the software architectures that he and his team of architects were producing were very much mirroring the organizational structures that they had, that the way the teams were laid out. And he wrote this article, people thought about it a little bit, and then it kind of disappeared. And then every once in a while, including recently, you start hearing about it again as people are starting to realize just the, the, what he hit on, the, the absolute truth of, of this. And it became known as, as Conway's Law. So what, what does this look like in your experience? What's a couple of quick examples? And we can dive in more in a bit. One of my favorite restatements of Conway's Law. So Conway's Law, as the way it's traditionally stated, is organizations which design systems are constrained to produce designs which are copies of the communication structures of these organizations. Pretty wordy, not necessarily clear. My favorite restatement of it, which also kind of identifies this, is from Eric Raymond. He says, uh, if you have four groups working on a compiler, you'll get a four-pass compiler, right? Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's true. Like, you, you know, in your own teams, you, know, you can absolutely see this being the case. And and I did as well. Like, you know, I worked at, uh, you know, I, I started working in the industry back in the early 90s um, when we were structuring things and very traditionally, very much actually not that different from the way things were structured in when Conway was was working. 
Um, and you would see this very much. Uh, the way the team structured had a direct correlation and to the architecture because that's how you were splitting up the work and it was it's a very natural correspondence and and i saw this really clearly when i was in much bigger teams uh like at microsoft where i sent where you know as you decide when you make these fundamental decisions okay which team's going to own what or do we need a new team we have this thing we want to build do we need a new team for it what would happen is you'd be just trying to figure out how to split the work across the people but you'd end up inadvertently making important architectural decisions that you'd end up living with just because if a different group of people builds a thing they're going to build it in a way that makes sense to them and is independent so that they can execute without being stuck waiting for everybody else all the time. So it, it's I've, I've just seen it over and over again. And then I've seen the corollary as we become much more cognizant of this factor, changing how we organize teams in order to take advantage of it. So do you view this as something that, is it really a law? Like, is it inescapable or are there, are there notable counterexamples? What are the boundaries of the law? So that's, in, that's a good question because one of the things that, you know, as I said, like essentially, this was Conway kind of ranting in a, in a in a very well said way in a magazine because he didn't have his own blog post back then, and it got called Conway's Law, but it's not like physics. But actually, people have tried to prove it. It's come out. There's been a few different studies. A notable one came from uh, Harvard Business School back in 2008, where they did this uh, study uh, called uh, "Exploring the Duality Between Product and Organizational Architectures: A Test of the Mirroring Hypothesis." So another way uh, that people talk uh, about Conway's law is this notion of a mirroring hypothesis that the organizational structure mirrors the software architectures that are produced. Uh, so it's more of a business school case study, but they actually talked to lots of different organizations and they found a fairly good correspondence between this. Uh, they they proved this mirroring hypothesis to the extent that um, they could that. Yeah, no, there is this very strong correspondence between this structure and and um, and and the software architecture. So is it a law in like the speed of light is a law or, you know, you can't violate it? No, you, you can. Um, this is people. This isn't um, laws of physics. This is psychology and sociology and to a certain extent brain chemistry, which I can talk about. But it's really hard not to do it, right? So it isn't impossible, but it's you tend to go that way whether you intend, whether you mean to or not. Strong enough tendency that we should pay attention. You have, yeah. If you don't pay attention, it's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. Yeah. And if you don't want it to happen, you have to work really hard to make it not happen. Right. So, so I'd love to learn a little bit about your experiences, you know, throughout your career with this. So, you know, what do companies typically, in some of the, the places you've worked, do they typically approach this eyes open and design a, an org structure uh, along the lines of the architecture that they want to design, or is it something that's realized in the retrospect? I think there are companies that have been very cognizant uh, of this force. Uh, another way uh, you talk about Conway's law or the mirroring hypothesis, another way of saying is this homomorphic force, right? It's which is a mathematical concept, but the idea that there's a, a mirroring between between these two things that are are 
similarly structured desire to make these uh, things be the same. So companies, there have been companies that have been very cognizant of it, either within the context of Conway's R, just the this homomorphic force, this mirroring hypothesis. Uh, companies like Netflix, companies like Amazon, companies like Spotify, where I worked, where they deliberately structured their teams in a way that reinforced yeah, the architectures that they wanted to build. Or another way of saying it is they had this structure that they wanted for their teams that ended up producing the optimal software structure that that has supported them. So when you think of all these three companies, you tend to think about microservices, right? right. So there is, uh, but all the all these companies have structured themselves in a way that only microservice architectures really work, or, or, or SOA, right? Because they have lots of teams. The teams are all working independently of each other. They talk to each other through interfaces. Well, the only way to make that happen is for each of these teams to own their own set of independent services from each other. Sure. You can think about it, and I've definitely seen this a lot, especially talking to different startups. When you're a small company, you're just getting started, you're a few developers, well, what do you build? You build a monolith, right? You have one team. A monolith is easy to deploy. A monolith uh, is easy to understand. Everybody can share the same repo. Awesome. You have one team. One team builds one service. Your company, if your company is successful, it starts to grow. Well, now you need two teams, right? It's The team has gotten too big. Well, okay, maybe you can both work on the monolith, but it starts to become difficult just because you have to coordinate stuff together. You know, a a great example, actually, of a company that has figured out how to build a monolith forever is Facebook, right? But they have to deal a lot to work around these issues with Conway's Law, including just inventing new computer science in order to make some of their software architecture work and support their model because it is so distinct from their software architecture. But, you know, with a startup, you're building, you're building, now you have two teams. Eventually, that frustration of both working on the monolith, maybe you figure out how to split the monolith. If you're lucky, if you're not, you continue to work with it and you you pay that down the road. But then you have three teams and you have four teams and you have five teams. And what starts to happen is because your software architecture and your organizational structure are distinct from each other, there's a lot of tension between them. You broke the build and now all of us can't work. You know, right. those kinds of things start to happen, which is why you tend to see as companies grow and they start with a monolith like everybody does, you see all these discussions all over the place of how do we break up our monolith? Um, how are we... How are we doing that? Because it is so disjoint from their organization that it becomes a problem in itself. So you said they structure the team. I'd love to pick at that a little bit. Who sure. who inside the engineering hierarchy does the structuring? <laughs> what role is best suited to thinking about both organizational structure and its impact on architecture? That's a great question. So I've seen this done in different ways. Um, I think the, the the way this works best is more determined by the engineering culture of the organization and less by having a specific role. So um, I have seen companies have a software architecture group successfully or a chief software architect um, who would take on this responsibility of deciding how systems um, should be structured. I've also seen this 
and we did this at, at Avo, where there was a more of a consensus-driven approach for, well, how do we as an organization think we should do this? And structures, we put structures in place to kind of make those collective decisions um, efficiently. I think Spotify had a chief software architect, but his main role was more or less making sure good uh, good, dis- uh, good engineering principles were being used in making decisions and asking developers tough questions when they wanted to diverge from things. Um, but though those structures and architecture really came very much from a individual team and, and uh, sort of best practices coming through the organization. So, and I've seen it driven by somebody like me in the CTO role as well. I, I think it's really going to determ- be determined by the company and, and the, the structure, how the company wants to operate. So if you're CTO and you're looking at uh, making a bunch of changes which are architectural, mm-hmm. would you suggest leading with with a team structure or is it, you know, which comes first? Oh, yeah. Okay. I get to I get what you're saying. Yeah. So, so there's two ways to do this. One would be to embrace Conway's law and say, well, this is the team structure we have. So we should build a, an architecture that supports this. Because if we build an architecture that doesn't map to our team structure, it's just going to cause us lots of challenges. The other way to approach it is to do what is called a reverse Conway maneuver, which is one of my favorite phrases in the software industry. That is to say, we want this software architecture, like pick the software architecture first and then design the teams so that they support that software architecture. So give me an example of that. How would that actually work in practice? So Spotify is that. Okay. So Spotify had a SOA approach from the very beginning. Um, and But it didn't start with the the team structure that people associate with Spotify. It started with a much more traditional kind of team structure. And so they have changed the, for many reasons, but one of the reasons being that they, they were having this problem of the software architecture and the team architecture or the team design being at odds with each other. They restructured teams in order to match the software architecture they were trying to drive. And, and what happened as a result? Depending on what you think of uh, SOA or microservices, massive success or massive failure, I guess. So, you know, Spotify had, when I left, which was a couple of years ago, Spotify had over 800 services in production. That's 800 different services, thousands of instances running, but of course, but where the there was more than one service per developer, right? Oh, wow. Yes. So... When I left, um, there was around, I think, 800 developers, around 800 services, but obviously 800 people in technology, right? But that also included testers and agile coaches and other folks as well. So if you want to, it worked incredibly efficiently. I mean, Spotify is really excellent. I, I think Netflix, I don't know what Netflix number is now, but Netflix around the same time had the same number of services with fewer developers. So how does that map? How how is that an instantiation of Conway's law? Is that is that consistent? Yeah. So both Netflix and, and uh, Amazon's the other company I mentioned. Netflix, Spotify, Amazon they run their teams as independent units, right? Each of them is kind of working on against its own set of goals and operating 
fairly autonomously. I think Spotify by far the most, right? That's the the kind of critical part of Spotify's way of working. But certainly, you know, teams in Netflix, teams in Amazon function independent of each other for the most part. So a non, whether that needs to be more than one service per team or not is is questionable, except for if like at Spotify or Amazon, a team gets too big and you want to split it in half, if that team is building its own mini monolith, now you're stuck with restructuring that monolith to split it into two teams, to split into two right. pieces for each of the teams. If you start with these much smaller building blocks tied to very specific functionality, if a team splits or a team divides up into 15 or whatever, each of those services can travel with the new teams. And so that gives you a lot more flexibility where you're not having to do this continual software re-architecture to make your software and your team congruent. So I guess I'm having I'm having a bit of a hard time envisioning what the organizational structure of an 800 services microservice team is. Is it fairly does that mean that these things can the ownership can be passed along in a fairly facile way? Do teams own multiple services? How does that work? What is a team? So I know best uh, Spotify and and Avo Tunics, uh, Avo as well. Avo was also on this path, but not as far along. So I can talk about it at Spotify. Um, at Spotify, teams um, would own many services, sometimes on the order of you know a couple dozen services for a ten-person team. And what that meant was each of these services would own a small piece of the overall product. There were a few large services. The playlist service at Spotify is fairly massive, but there were much smaller services as well. Search Suggest was its own service. So if you're typing in the search bar in Spotify and you get the list of suggestions, that's an independent service that runs. And it's right. fairly small. The beauty of these smaller services would be that, again, like let's say the playlist team decided to split into two teams, one just to do special things for podcasts and the other one to continue to focus on music, the music specific applications. In that case, there's a, some of these services are already going to be structured towards podcasts and those go with the podcast team and the other ones stay with the music service. So now one team, instead of owning 20 some or 30 some services, now one team owns 20 and one team owns 10. And so you can split them much easier. But also when, if you wanted to transition, let's say, because this did happen while I was there, the playlist service was actually owned uh, when I joined by the infrastructure organization, just for whatever historical reason. And they were saying, well, we shouldn't be owning this service. A product team should own it. So they transitioned it over. Because the service itself, even though it's one of the larger services, is still a you know relatively small amount of functionality relative to the entire product, it was able to be transitioned from team to team from a completely different sets of owners, you know, with a, a day or two of of like hand holding and kind of walking through the code, because it, it itself was relatively small. So when services transfer like that from from one team to another, mm -hmm. is it typical for people to go with them? How's the domain knowledge piece handled? Um, so uh, I've done it different ways in different organizations. Um, I think that this one and this actually this, this example I gave specifically is interesting because 
uh, it was transitioning from a team in Stockholm to a team in Gothenburg. Oh, wow. Sometimes you would do it with an actual person moving from team to team. Usually it'd be, that'd be the case if that person was particularly attached to working on this problem. They might switch teams. But often it wasn't that. It was, no, it was a, a handoff process where there's sort of a sit down, a walk through the service from the owning team to the, the team that's taking it over to make sure all the questions are asked and you can talk through, well, we were thinking we were going to do this at some point, or this has been a challenge in the past and you might want to look at refactoring this, you know, basically do a knowledge transfer. And then past that, you might have somebody kind of rotated into a squad or a team for a couple sprints kind of continuing their work and before they go back to their team. Um, so there's lots of different ways to do it, but essentially it's a, a like a normal handoff process, and sometimes it means a person goes as well. How important is the notion of ownership, like sort of functional ownership, yeah. with regard to organizational and architectural design? I mean, it sounds like it, it, it's fairly integral to a lot of what we've been talking about. Is a strong notion of ownership a key piece of this? So that's actually a pretty that's actually a really good question because I think we didn't talk talk at all about functional structure right. in this case, right? So having been in organizations where the functional silos are distinct, right? At Microsoft back in the 90s when I was there, right? You had product management was this kind of own thing, building the specs, handing them off to development, or we'd build them where we'd hand them off to test who would test them, right? Right. And so these functional silos tended it these created their own kind of conway's law problems just not because of the software architecture but because of the structural aspects of this where you know the the spec was built completely without technical pro you know or some technical input but really driven outside of the engineering team and so the the product people would build stuff that made sense from a user perspective the program program managers but made no sense from an engineering perspective because of the way the software was architected, which would require massive re-architecture sometimes of components to make it work in this way, which would then delay the release, which would get it to testing late, which would require, you know, where a cross-functional team, like a lot of companies do now, tends to not really have that because everyone's part of that decision-making process. Yeah, I love it. So do you, I'm actually going to follow up on that one. Okay. Um, I think there's a difference between, I mean, it almost sounds like you're suggesting a difference between microservice and and micro monolith. I get really, I've gotten really careful about the microservice word, partially because I don't know if we all agree what that is. (laughs) Probably not. What do you you think a, a healthy definition of that is? In, in this context, I am scared to actually say it because I don't want to see what people are going to, I don't want to hear what people are going to be yelling at their phones when they hear me say it. But I think for me, you know, and that you, this is why I said, well, SOA or microservice, right? Right. One of the things, based on your definition, whatever you all have in your head is probably right. What I'm going to, the way I tend to think about it and where I've seen it actually be very valuable is a service that's small enough that it's easier to rewrite than it is to refactor. Oh, I love that. If you think about it, and there's 
it's there's a lot of overhead involved, right? If that would mean you have lots of services, right? Which means you have to have a infrastructure that supports having lots of services. I think when we when we were really talking about microservices a lot, it was before serverless, right? Serverless now is essentially kind of microservices taken to the extreme uh, or taken to its next logical step. But what I liked about the way we would structure services um, at Spotify was that, you know, the problems I'd seen when we were building larger services of we have a new API version. So now we have a bunch of stuff in the code. Well, if you're using this version of the API, we're going to do this. If you're using this version of the API, we're going to do this slightly differently. And it becomes a little bit of a business logic rat's nest sometimes in the code, supporting all these different API endpoints. And instead, what you could do is say, no, there's going to be like, we wrote this service to support version six. Well, now we're doing version seven. We're just going to write a new service because it it's small enough that that is a matter of a sprint versus six months. Right. If we do that, and the, the logic now is very dedicated. We are, sol- we are doing this in the way this version of the API works. We have clients continuing to talk to the old version of the API we can actually watch that, right? So in a company like uh, Spotify, where you have uh, external API folks, hardware talking to specific versions of API, things like that, you really can't retire old APIs ever, but you can watch usage, right? So how many times is this is version six of this API being hit? And there's a threshold below which you can say, okay, well, now we can finally retire this and just shut the service down, that implementation of the service. Version seven is still running. So if right. you had a service talking to both endpoints and you've got all this code in that service to support the different, however, this is slightly different from each other. When you when you can say, well, we can turn off version six, well, you still have all this code still that you're either going to have to refactor or just live with this kind of crufty dead code in your in your in your code, which produces bugs, which produces quality issues, which may produce scaling issues. So being able to say. No, we're just going to have a new service here rather than continue to work on an existing service is really powerful. It's also easier to test. There's a, there's a lot of benefit to that. So that's what I think of when I think of when I think of microservices. Awesome. So do you do you see Conway's law playing out with uh, cross-functional teams? I mean, cross it, it seems to be um, one of the main trends in the industry right now, yeah. is this notion of cross-functional teams. Do you see that playing out? Um, with regard to Conway's law, and and if so, how? There's a part, and when I think of teams, you know, one of the things I like to think of, and this shows, well, not not just my Spotify kind of bias, but but also some of the things that I was working on before uh, and since. What I think of when I think of effective teams is I think of teams that are working, own sort of their different components that are able to work independently of each other. And that, to me, is a higher, highly desirable thing for a software engineering organization, is that the teams don't have a lot of strict dependencies between them, because that tends to slow them down. So where that maps very well to Conway's law, if these teams are independent and they each own a, by design or by organic, these teams each own their own modules, that builds the software architecture, that's great. Cross-functionality comes into it back more to the idea that these teams 
can operate independently of each other. And so a cross-functional team has much fewer dependencies onto centralized organizations. So when I build teams, I like to have, if I can, a designer. If the team owns UI, I want to have a designer who sits in the team. Um, That that means is because I've been in organizations where design was centralized and, you know, if we needed some help with some UI, I had to sort of fill out my request and paper and triplicate to a sort of centralized design uh, organization and so that they could give me four weeks of a de- or four hours of a designer's time nine days in the future, right? And so having that cross-functional team means that that team can operate independently and doesn't have to wait for things, which I like. And what, what size do you see companies sort of hitting that threshold? I mean, all companies are sort of born tiny and monolithic. Right. And at what point is it is it time to start thinking about um, you know uh, either breaking that up or, or doubling down? You know, where's that? Where does the pain start to hit, and what does that feel like? Well, I think that it's it's going to depend a lot on your your budget and your ability to hire and a lot of things, right? So, in a company with a the ability to hire fairly well and the, a budget to be able to staff up, it's fairly easy to build these kind of independent autonomous teams um, that are fully cross-functional, right? Spotify is a great example. A lot of companies don't have that. And it's just real, like that's life, right? Like you, you have enough budget for three designers, but you have six teams. So in that yeah. world, you're going to have to figure out a different structure, but still, you can do this in, a, in an acknowledgement of looking for where the bottlenecks are and then just trying to get rid of them. So I think that, you know, one thing I like to think about um, when I think about this, because when you think cross-functionally and when we think about software teams, we tend to think, you know, you might think like front-end dev or full-stack dev and back-end dev or maybe data or design, tests, all those different kind of traditional functions, but data is a new one, right? Right. And data uh, engineering and data science was so rare and so hard to find those people that you were only going to be able to have one or two for your organization, right? So then you couldn't distribute them. You couldn't have truly cross-functional teams, but you would might start with that where you're, you know, they're picking the, they're on the projects that are most critical or they're going team to team and helping where they can. As you as an organization get better at utilizing those folks, you hire in more and eventually you reach a sort of critical mass where you no longer need to centralize it. You can now distribute that function, which brings that knowledge just like we did with test, just like we did with um, product um, or program management that got distributed. And the value to the team was having these different functional voices represented was pretty pretty significant, right? How things worked before and after. So I think that's the way I like to think about like any new function and how to distribute it. You have to start from a centralized kind of timeshare model until you develop that critical mass where you can distribute it. But that should always be your goal. The end game. That should always be the end game. Yeah. And I'm fairly opinionated. You can hear about software architecture and the way that I want to, the way that I like to see it structured and the way that I've seen it work well. You can apply these ideas. The same ideas are always going to be there, no matter what your preferred software architecture. And I think the 
the critical piece there is just understanding that and and taking advantage of that or just working with that understanding. So it sounds like the suggestion here is that a almost like a temporary embed is better and, and sort of more in line with Conway's law than these fractional units of someone's time, like a half day here, six hours here. Oh, yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if Melvin Conway would say that, but I, that's what I'm going to say. Sure. That's what I'm going to say yeah. for him. I think that, but that's also just for me, a level of uh, efficiency, right? So if you need, you know, if you're working on something and that something requires a skill set and that skill set is distant from you in the organization, it's very hard to get any kind of quick response, right? If I have to, you know, apply for a data scientist's time to help with this problem, and that person isn't available to me because they're working on something else for a week, I'm now stuck for a week. If that person instead spends two weeks sitting with me and my team where we can have very good interaction and I can ask all my questions as I come up with them, I'm going to have a lot better context where I may not need as much of their time. Right. Do you see any sort of common Conway's Law anti-patterns that are recurrent in the industry? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that. I'm trying to think where people are just like doing something really dumb. Yeah, where things where, where you come in and you're like, well, that that is a classic Conway's Law style problem, right? You yeah. Are- oh, yeah. One of the things, I haven't seen this quite as much, but I still see it from time to time, right? Is uh, these teams, and, and, and by the way, like this is how I structured my organization at Adobe, where uh, one thing I see as a pretty common pattern is this thing where, okay, well, we have the server team, then we have the client team, then we have like the core library team, and these are all separate teams. And then people will come to me and say, hey, Kevin, like, can you do a call with us and help us with some challenges we're having in the organization. Uh, Okay, yeah, what's going on? Well, everything's taking so long because every new feature comes from the client team and then they have to request the functionality from the core library team, which has to request the functionality from the server team. And this organizational structure is very much mapping onto the layer cake of our architecture. But what that actually, the value that that brings or that's just slowing all product development down because we're having to coordinate across these different silos. That's a, that's a sort of very classic example. And it, that is how we structure teams for the longest time. You put all the server developers together, you put all the, the core, you know, the, the piece that talks to the server and supports the functionality to the different clients and then the client teams. That was a very obvious way to structure your organization, but it was an obvious way to structure your organization because that was how you divided the work on the architecture. This is another case where moving from a monolith approach to an SOA approach lets you actually say, well, no, like the, the services that support this set of functionality is going to live in the team that owns the front end, right? So that we can, right. this is where we get into the full stack developers and the full stack teams that completely own the feature teams model is sort of a solution for that anti-pattern, but that it, that pattern being an anti-pattern is relatively new. Right. I, I love that you brought up the full stack developer. Do you, when you're putting together these cross-functional teams, is that a skill set that you look for or, 
you know, is it more like a myth that people want because, because they want this sort of, you know, uh, vertical feature ownership? What's your view on that? So, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of skilled full stack developers. I, I tend to think, and, and maybe this is my own bias as a, as a developer or having been a developer for a number of years, right? I think that we all can do lots of stuff because... We're interested in lots of things and we can learn lots of different skills. But I do think that we all naturally have an affinity towards one side or the other. I don't think anybody's a pure full stack developer that's amazing at building services and also amazing at crafting, you know, user interface. I think you tend to have a proclivity on one side or the other. And so just acknowledging that, like there's folks who do full stack and they're they love building the back end, but only so they can make a better front end. And then folks who love full stack because they love building the back end and they can do the front end too if they need to. And so building when you build a team, like I'll build a I like building with full stack devs, but I'll mix it up. Like you people will tell you, like, well, I I like both, but I, I can do both, but I prefer one or the other, and then try and match them up. Um, it's this idea of the the T-shaped person, like right. I, I can do machine learning and like simple machine learning, and I can also do iOS development, and I can also do this. But I'm a I'm a real expert at writing efficient database code, right? That's that's right. my depth, right? And then mixing that all up in a team so you get a nice breadth and depth is is a good skill to have or a good way to produce good teams. So with the onset of, of a, a new software project, is it, from your view, is it sort of inevitable that, that it start as a monolith? It isn't inevitable. It's just natural. So right. you can either choose to do that or choose not to do that. I think when you're building a new product, and maybe it's different now, I think one of the things I tend to see this a lot in these companies that are kind of going through this, uh, you know, this now somewhat classic monolith to microservices transition is these are all companies of a certain age, primarily, right. um, who sort of came of age in the days before public cloud, when you were still racking your own servers, and you know you're and and so in that world, like having a deployment that is you know SCP of a single service, that's pretty awesome and saves you a lot of time at the beginning. Nowadays. You know, companies forming now, they're they're much more quick to embrace that sort of smaller service approach because they can leverage all the infrastructure that the public clouds give them. Um, and they don't have to build as much of a capability around because there's a lot of infrastructure support you need, right? So now between, you know, Docker and Kubernetes and just serverless um, and those kind of pieces and cloud formation or whatever, it's much, much easier to build uh, a microservice architecture or a SOA architecture from the beginning than it used to be. So I I don't know if it's just because I tend to talk to a lot of companies in that 10, you know, that eight to 10 year, eight to 12 year range who started with a monolith because they were running out of their own colo um, and buying machines. And this was the easiest way to do it. I don't see that as much anymore. So for teams that are that are in that transition from a big monolith to to microservices, or they're they're breaking up the app in some fashion, how do you go about maintaining architectural integrity of the product as teams be, 
you know, as teams become larger and then split right. and the architecture splits. Yeah. I, th- I mean, if I could solve that problem in, in uh, a sentence, I should, you know, <laughs> I should write a book and solve, totally. solve this problem. This is such a, I mean, there are so many companies struggling with this, including, you know, uh, you know, when I came to Avo, Avo was um, in the, had started this transition and was struggling with it just like everybody else. And I would love to say, to people listening, oh, well, all we did was this and we totally solved it. But no, we struggled. We continued to struggle with it the whole time I was there. We made a lot of progress, but you know, it's, it's a challenge. I think the pattern, there's a few patterns I've seen that I find really interesting. One was the one I heard about that they did at Warby Parker, where rather than sort of start splitting individual pieces of functionality out into their own services, Instead, what they did is split their monolith into four smaller monoliths and then split each of those monoliths into four smaller monoliths as a different way of approaching the problem. And just finding those cut lines was critical, obviously, but um, that led them tease it apart, I think, in a, in a more e- in an easier fashion. But that doesn't work in correspondence with Conway's law necessarily. So how do you know if you're dividing things up into monoliths versus versus microservices? I mean, I know it sounds like a silly question, but no. there's so much difference in how we use terms in the industry. Right, and that's why I, I, I'm I'm trying to be really careful how I use the word microservice. Sure. Um, what I would say again, like one of the things, the way we approached it at Avo was I would, the approach I think a lot of companies do, which was we found individual pieces of functionality in our monolith. So a single APIs, right? Um, here's an API that returns uh, returns this set of information about an attorney, okay, on the monolith. Okay, so what we can do is let's put a new API, a new service that just calls through to the monolith. And then we will extract all the logic out of the monolith and put it into this service, and then it stops calling the monolith. And this functionality is removed from the monolith that's running in its own service. To the extent that, again, like the way I think of microservices is it's easier to rewrite and write a new one than refactor, that tended to be fairly small. And when I say rewrite, it's, you know, a sprint, right, to rewrite. That's right. certainly the, where we were at with a lot of services at Spotify. Um, and when we started, or by the time we were done, or by the time we I left at Avo, that's kind of where we were now, too. It was much easier to write a new service than it was to add functionality to the monolith. And that let us pull stuff out of the monolith on a, on a much better basis. So small, small enough. So as the code breaks apart a little bit, who helps manage the communication between dependencies that might still exist there? So one of the things I like with the right kind of developer culture you have in your teams works pretty well. When multiple teams are all kind of working together on a monolith, uh, there has to be some level of communication. They can all be working on their own things, but in the end, this thing is going to get deployed as a unit. And when it gets good, when it goes down, somebody's going to get called and they're going to have to respond and it's not going to be obvious whose code broke, right? So you have to share knowledge across that team. It doesn't change that much when you're doing this transition, right? So a team will say like, hey, we're going to pull this code out 
of the monolith. Like this is kind of functionality that maps to what our team does. So we're going to move this out into its own service and just making the rest of the folks working on the monolith aware of that. Usually you might actually have, if other teams like have some sort of visibility into that part of the code, having them do code reviews, but generally making sure there's, there's just people are aware of what's going on. I think part of this as well is being careful about overstating code ownership. So right. if you say, well, I own this code or my team owns this code, you put yourself, but other people have dependencies on this code, you put yourself in a situation where if team B needs something in a service that's maintained by team A, and they're, they have to make a request to team A, which has to be prioritized, against whatever else team A is doing, which means team B is now waiting for who knows how long. I, I've seen that a lot. I don't like that. So instead, I like to say, you know, if team B needs something in a service that's nominally, like team A is operationally responsible for, team B lets team A know, hey, we're going to make this change. Just in case team A says, well, hey, we were just about to like get rid of that service or something, just so you don't have miscommunications there. Team A says, okay, you go ahead and make your change. Team B makes the change in Team A's code. Team A code reviews the change, accepts it, and then deploys it. And that way, you know, the, that operational responsibility piece, piece is pretty key because, again, somebody's going to get woken up when something doesn't work. But I don't like have, having teams have to to be dependent on each other for changes to code. So I'd rather have each everybody... Code is owned by everybody, but operational responsibility is clearly delineated as a, as a way, and that which requires pretty significant communication, right? It sounds like it borrows a little bit from um, some, I mean, open source practices, right? Mm. You're welcome to, to come change it, but we're going to review it and make sure it passes yeah. since we're the owners of the project. No, it's, I mean, that's exactly where I'm inspired by. Yeah, it's just how open source projects work. And is most of that style communication... Um, typically done ad hoc I mean, in, in places you've worked? Yeah, uh, well, not necessarily in places I've worked, but, <laughs> but in places that I've had the in- ability to influence and or change how it works. Yeah, it is. Um, so having worked in very structured kind of environments where communication flows only through very specific channels, very sort of like the, the places that are n- not that distinct from where Conway was working, I always bristled at that because you 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 know the communication between teams was really tightly controlled and structured and it removed a lot of the important kind of co-ownership of things and so in st- organizations where I've been able to influence and or direct how things should work yeah I prefer this developer to developer kind of more ad hoc communication and the, the channel for that communication is typically pull requests or what are the mechanics behind that? So it can be any number of things. Um, it can be pull requests. It can be Slack channels. It can be, um, you know, Spotify had uh, has this notion of guilds where folks who work across uh, in a skill set will meet together across all the different teams on a regular basis to discuss best practices or, or challenges they're seeing. We had at Avo, we had uh, a weekly meeting for all, whichever developers wanted to show up, um, an open invite meeting to talk about uh, what we called strategy, tech 
strategy where people could say, hey, I'm thinking, I've got this problem, I'm thinking about solving it this way, what does everybody else think? That ended up being a good way to share kind of developer to developer and and raise issues that maybe one developer was seeing on another team that another developer on a different team had just solved, right? There's also, you know, in matrix organizations like Spotify, like Avo became, you also have that sort of uh, your immediate peers in your in the management structure who span multiple groups and can share information that way as well. And are those, the, so setting up and establishing those communication structures when they may not exist, is that just sort of something that you do by fiat? How, how does that come to be? There's a combination of sort of nudging. <laughs> I like to manage yeah. by nudging primarily, the less by fiat, because by fiat tends to mean that, you know, people tend to resent somebody who just says, do it this way, because I want you to do it this way. Um, so instead, I kind of manage a lot more through kind of nudging, like, hey, maybe we should have something like this, or maybe this might work. And then try and get somebody excited about it and have them kind of take it and drive it themselves. Um, if I can get somebody excited about it. I think these kind of ad hoc communication structures work much better if it is not something that management imposes, but something actually the developers build themselves and maintain themselves. So that the meeting that I mentioned at Avo, that was started by one of the developers and run by the developers themselves. I would come, I would sometimes speak if I had an opinion, but it wasn't my meeting, right? So I was just there to, to participate. And that meant that you know, they they could raise the issues that they had as opposed to me setting an agenda. And so you, you already definitely see this. I mean, Slack's the great equalizer, right? And, and Slack's sure. been really great for this or IRC channels before it. It's essentially taking those things where people already self-organize and just making it and giving it more support for to take that beyond the virtual. So one of the things I always find fascinating about Conway's Law is it's specifically about the communication structure, right? Um, which of course follows work structure and all that. Do you do you think there's still a place for sort of regular um, formal meetings, and and how do you approach that kind of thing? Um, yeah, I think I always tend to think of things in terms of communication pathways within an organization. So because that is really how that tends to influence beyond software architecture, it influences a lot who talks to who and how thing how information moves through an organization makes shows a lot about how that organization gets its work done, and that and software architecture just being one part of it, and so. In an organization I lead, like, sure, you're still going to have these kind of formal meetings, some of which are going to be me communicating to my team because I have access, you know, spreading the knowledge that I have about what's going on to them. I think that's still valuable, but I also try and encourage these person-to-person kind of informal meetings or formal as well, one-on-ones, peer-to-peer one-on-ones, peer-to-peer mentoring team meetings, these kind of community of interest meetings, just as a way of trying to break through the different silos that you have, right? So Conway was really reacting to how the silos of the organization produced sometimes inferior software architectures, but they were mapped to those silos. So I like breaking apart finding ways to kind of subvert the siloization as much as possible. So even in a company like Spotify, where you tend to think of it as this really autonomous and like all this great stuff, 
there's absolutely communication flows and networks, and those are influencing the structure or influencing lots of different things. And so that's why you have these elements like guilds, because the tribes at Spotify, the squads were their own silos, and they weren't functional silos, they were sort of feature silos, and then the tribes were silos. And this is where those guilds could kind of break through those things and finding other conduits like the Spotify has a, a strong agile po- coach population and they become their own kind of functional network that transcends all the different silos. And so you, as a leader, you learn how to take advantage of these different networks to spread information, but also to, to glean information. Yeah. I don't know if I just answered your question. <laughs> you, <did. laughs> you said you'd like to encourage these, oh, these kind of um, yes. alternate communication channels. What, is, what are the mechanics behind that? It's sort of like the inverse nudge. Right, right. right. But so, what does that kind of support look like? Is it sponsoring lunch? I mean, sure. you know, just nuts and bolts. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, certainly it's stuff like that. It's it's uh, it's encouraging people who, who will come to you and say, hey, I'd like to do a lunch and learn on this. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'll pay for lunch. Go for it. It's setting up meetings. Um, so, one thing I did at Avo, um, based on my experiences, other places, was a kind of a yearly mini developer conference. I did one for data and then one for product development, where everybody could just, it was open invitation, it was day, there's food, it was an unconference style. So it wasn't, you know, me driving an agenda, but it was an opportunity, uh, this for people to speak to each other and start to build correspondences and networks sort of more organically rather than sort of creating it. So finding opportunities to bring folks from different teams together and get them, find ways to get them speaking to each other would tend to build these networks in a very kind of organic and loose way. But we also did things at, at Avo, like build a mentoring network, a very explicit sign up for a mentor, either to mentor, well, you had to both mentor and if you wanted to be mentor. So it was a, a two-way thing. That helped build correspondences. You can also do this really effectively if, you're, if you have an organization that's more self-organized. So um, there's a company in Seattle called Cumulo who builds uh, storage uh, appliances for enterprises. And they do a periodic um, restructuring exercise where it's essentially like a job fair and everybody can join, switch teams. And that tends to produce an organization where your network spans lots of different teams within the company. Another thing that companies do and was really valuable, um, I first did at Spotify, would be these kind of uh, onboarding teams where you join a team. I know lots of companies do this, um, where you join a team when you start and you work on that team for you know a couple weeks or a month or something with people who are moving on to all different teams. And that kind of kickstarts a network for you within the company where you know people in lots of different parts of the organizations. And that is another way of kind of breaking through silos. So how do you know if it's time to really focus on this in a meaningful way? I mean, what's what are the signs that you may have a communication bottleneck? So I think, you know, one of the things I will do periodically, and, well, I, I hear this a lot. Well, let me step back. I hear this a lot from companies where, you know, they'll uh, call me and they'll say, like, hey, can you 
dial into this meeting. Um, you know, we've been really structured. We've been really challenged by our ab- ability to execute. Like we're moving way too slow, right? Like, ah, oh, I hear this so often, like we're moving way too slow and we don't understand why and things are, should be going a lot faster. And um, one of the things I'll say around that is like, you know, how are you actually mapping how stuff moves through the organization? That's some exercises I've done within my own organization. Like when you feel like something should be going faster than it is, and, and there are tools that let you measure things, but I tend to go by, you know, how is it actually feeling? Right. You do a, an exercise where, like, uh, you spend a couple of weeks and you track work through the through your teams. So you know we're building this new feature. Okay, this team needed to do this, and then it goes to this team, and this could even be within a, a single team. But it's going from this person to this person that waited, you know, just a total Kanban kind of view to track work through it. And if you do that for uh, a few weeks, you'll start to see patterns. Oh, well, everything seems to get stuck here. Things get stuck other places, but this seems to be the primary bottleneck. And that's an opportunity to look at it and go, okay, well, is this team understaffed? Is this team, like, does this team need to be a separate team? Like that's where you can start looking for uh, options. But without, if you just ask people, why is stuff slow? They'll all tell you different things. And because none of them have that complete picture of how work moves through. So each person in the organization is going to identify different areas to what they think the problem is, but they don't have the broader view. So actually mapping out how the work moves through the organization, actually tracking individual pieces of work and finding where they get stuck that gives you a lot better insight. I love that. All right. Well, is there anything we haven't discussed yet that we should have? Oh, I think we got to talk about, you know, one of my favorite parts when I, when I think about Conway's law is uh, how it actually maps to your brain. Ooh, I love it. Which I I didn't get to talk about. I want to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting, and as I was, uh, you know, uh, I, I originally gave a talk at the software architecture, the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference a little while ago, specifically about this correspondence between uh, software architecture and organizational design. And um, as part of this, and just kind of doing more research and trying to learn more about it so that I could, you know, speak about it, um, I talked to uh, Britt Andriata who uh, is a sort of organizational sociologist, but also has done a lot working at brain uh, and how your brain responds to different inputs from the organization. And um, I was explaining to her what Conway's Law was and and some of the things that I'd seen, and she actually brought up an important thing that I had never really thought about. And then I studied a little bit more and was really fascinated by, there's a part of your brain in the hippocampus called the uh, entorhinal complex. That part of your brain has, is where you store all your maps. So it's your physical maps. It's like how you know to get from your house to the bus and the bus to the office, right? And you can kind of do that on an autopilot after the first couple times because that map is stored in your brain. But that also tends to contain the maps of the social structures that you operate in within as well. And so like your organizational structure in the company you work for is also stored in that entorhinal complex. And 
the software architecture that you work on. That is, that is very wild. much a map, right? And your and and this homomorphic force I mentioned before, this mathematical thing, the mirroring hypothesis, Conway's law. Essentially, what's it saying is you have this strong force that wants to wants these two different graphs, let's say, to be similar, where they it, because that makes mapping easier. So you can think about this in this context. You're working on a software project. Let's say you're in a more traditional structure. You work on the back end. You're a user of your product and you see a bug in the Android client. And you want to say, oh, I should tell the, that team that I found this bug. I should, I, should, I should give them the bug. And then you have to think about, well, who's on that team? Like, who, who do I send the bug to? And the fact is, like, okay, well, you have the software architecture because you know the software architecture in your head. If the organizational structure maps to that software architecture, clearly you go, oh, I send it to the Android team. That's pretty obvious. If, for example, your software architecture and your organizational architecture are distinct, like the Android client is actually owned by the, I don't know, web team. Right. And you go, well, I don't, wait, you actually don't know. Like, well, I know there's an Android client, but there's no team that maps to this. Which team owns this? You know, like it's a perennial problem. Like who's supposed to get this bug? I don't know who owns this thing. So this is one of these cases where this homomorphic force, this, you know, where these two maps want to be similar in your Toronto complex, this actually leads you back into Conway's law and it makes things a lot easier. So this is one of these cases where, you know, you asked, is it a law? And the answer is no, of course, that's not a law. It's like, there's no, no one's going to arrest you for building a software architecture that is not congruent with your organizational design. However, if you choose to ignore it and build these two things in very different ways, nobody's going to have any clue who to talk to or who's responsible for anything. And there's going to be continual pressure to make these things make be the same because your internal maps don't match up at all. And it's you're, you're literally fighting your own brain here. And actually having kind of come to that realization started to make me understand because why this actually was such a problem to, to try and avoid Conway's law or subvert Conway's law, your brain is actually going to fight you on that one. Yeah, you're referencing the same map. Exactly. And or when they're different maps, like you can't map between them. There's no, there's no linear mapping from component to component. And it really confuses you and makes it very hard for you to, uh, to do your job. I love that. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, Kevin. This is Travis Kimmel for Software Engineering Radio, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.